read you a scripture. <clears throat> I'll just start at the beginning of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us from just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Amen. And the line I want to read is verse 10 from the Amplified. He planned for the maturity of the times and the climax of the ages to unify all things and head them up and consummate them in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. My dad has ministered from that passage my whole life and before I was even born. Ephesians 1.10. And I recently read where he used that amplified translation and it got my attention. Just the language. God planned for the maturity of the times and the climax of the ages to unify all things and head them up and consummate them in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. So God is in the business of unifying and bringing to completion or consummation things in heaven and things on earth. And if you look at the unique call of this church over the past nearly 50 years, you would have to see that a big part of this fellowship's ministry has been in the heavenly realm of spiritual realities, but also in the earthly realm of community and everyday life realities. And in the climax of the ages, God is going to bring unity in both of these spheres. The body of Christ is going to have the same mind about heavenly things and earthly things. That's the goal. And the result is that in Him we become, we, we, we would make known the manifold wisdom of God. Through this consummation, through this administration suitable for the fullness of times, we would make known the manifold wisdom of God, as he says in the subsequent chapters, to the principalities and powers and to every, everything, people, nations, individuals. So where did we end last week? We were talking about, we were catching, I believe, a, a super space or eternal glimpse into the magnitude of our calling into the real place that the church is supposed to play in these times. And you asked a very pertinent question, and I'll butcher it, but in summary, Blair Joel, you said, you said when you 
when you glimpse the magnitude, you ask yourself, how can my efforts ever measure up to that? How can what we're, it seems like what we're doing is so small by comparison. And how can we make a difference when you see the magnitude of the conflict, of, of the people, of the problem, and of the promise? And what did I say to you? You said that, to put it very simply, that it was by the only way that we were going to obtain, attain this immense goal, this immense prize that we're called to attain at the end of this race, and to match up to the bloating and immensely growing scheme and church of Satan was by a unity that we have not even come close to laying hold of and to attain. That's right. Amen. Well, you weren't here, were you? Amen. I said unity is the answer. When you say that, all kinds of different definitions start playing in everybody's mind. Different problems they label as disunity and different solutions they may label as unity. But we don't even have unity about what unity is. But that's a good place to start, don't you think? So what are the promises in the Bible for unity? What does the Bible, how does the Bible present unity as essential to the dispensation of the fullness of times, to the fulfilling of God's purpose on the earth? Can you think of any scriptures that mean a lot to you that speak of unity. I think of where it says that pleasant That's the one I was thinking of. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers brothers to dwell together in unity, for there Yahweh commands a blessing, even life evermore, everlasting. It is like the oil, the anointing oil on Aaron's head running down over his beard, covering his whole garment. Amen? So this is, is this David or Asaph? I think it's, what's well, the psalmist? We'll just say that. Can you think of any times, there's the promise of unity. Can you think of any times in the New Testament where that promise was realized? Where brothers dwelt together in unity and it resulted in an exceptional anointing, the day of Pentecost. The birth of the church is in effect the fulfillment of the psalmist's proclamation. Behold how good and how pleasant. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place of one mind and one accord. So they were in one place and then they came to one mind and they came to one accord. And that's when the suddenly took place. And suddenly. So as soon as they reached one mind and one accord, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like, of a mighty, like as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, one resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave utterance. So there you have it. You have the complete unity resulting in exponential power. And that power is the anointing. It's the holy anointing oil that runs down Aaron's head and his beard and over his whole body. And who, Aaron was merely a type of a greater priest, was he not? And what was the greater priest? Who was the ultimate high priest that Aaron could only foreshadow? Jesus. The writer of Hebrews tells us we have a high priest. Aaron was the first high priest. But he got all kinds of things wrong. He didn't walk in perfect unity, did he? He built golden calves at times. He got lots of things wacky fucal. 
but Jesus was a high priest. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was made like us in every way. So when we speak of the Aaronic high priesthood in the New Testament, we speak of the body of Christ. And the holy anointing oil starts with the head, who is the individual Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? But then it runs down over the whole body. Amen. Do you understand? It doesn't just touch his head. It covers his whole body. So the psalmist takes us from this image of brothers living together with a complete unity, and it results in a body, in one man, who is the fulfillment of the Aaronic priesthood. And the Aaronic priesthood represents the bridge between man and God, the intercessor, the mediator between man and God, right? So Aaron was there to sprinkle the atonement blood on the caporet, the caporet, to offer a token of, of our guilt before God, before His judgment Elohim. But Jesus was there not to sprinkle the blood of goats or of calves, but His blood speaks of, of greater things, of better things than that. He spilt His own blood and opened a new and living way. Amen. Not just on our behalf. He didn't just do it to then exonerate us, but He did it to make us part of Him so that the dwelling together in unity would result in one man. He has made from both one new man, a singular entity, the body of Christ. So even in the psalmist's vision of unity, it's the body of Christ that he sees as the ultimate consummation. So there are many other scriptures that we can think of that talk about unity. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. This indicates that leadership cannot have full joy until their ministry produces complete unity. That, that a major function and purpose of leadership is to put away schisms and bring complete unity. Many other scriptures, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians, and on and on and on. The, the schisms that he deals with in, the, to, with the, in 1 Corinthians and many scriptures. Anybody else want to throw any more out there that you're thinking of? Anybody particularly pertinent? And just there with Jesus, I think it was the last dinner. But where he talks about, I mean, he, to me it's always been just indicative of how important it is. He's about to sing, he says, and the prayer he prays is, Father, make them, them one. This is, this, is, this is what I pray, that they may be one. Amen. You and I are one. Amen. Father, make them one. And what, what is that prayer called that he prays? Anybody remember what the John 17 prayer is called? It's called the high priestly prayer. <laughs> Father, make them one as, as you and I are one. Let them be one in us. This is how they will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. This is how they will know that God sent Jesus by your unity, by your oneness. Why do you feel like that is? That, that the answer of whether Jesus was the Messiah or not is solved when a truly unified church is visible. This is how they will know you're my disciples by your love, and this is how they'll know that God sent Jesus by your unity. Why is unity a proof that Jesus was the Messiah? Otherwise, unity is impossible. Well, what was Jesus? He was the unity between what is human and what is divine. In Himself, he unified two divisible entities, God and man. Do you understand? So it begs the question, it assumes in the statement 
that the only way for us to become one is through the same submission of our flesh to the sovereignty of His Spirit that Jesus walked in. When He said, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. How many of you know of a scripture in Ephesians 3 that talks about unity? Be careful to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. So if you look at that in Ephesians 3, and I keep taking Judah's Bible here, but is it 4? Thank you. So it's Ephesians 4, not 3. So he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he, then he just starts into an emphatic reinforcement that there's only one way. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You cannot have, hope to have all this oneness unless God is in you all. But you can't have Him in you all unless you start with Him being above all. Amen. Then he goes on and he talks about the, what, what is diverse is the dispension of gifts in the body. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts unto men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till, right here, verse 13, till we come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. So he starts by saying, preserve endeavor, which means work at it. Work at it to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace. And then he says, because there's only one, 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 one way. <laughs> you got it? And that way is achieved when God is overall, in all. That's how, it's, that's how we're going to get there. But then he says, there are diversities, but God gave the fivefold ministry to get the saints to not only a unity of the Spirit, but a unity of faith. So the antidote to division is the fivefold ministry. If there is division in a church, it is because the fivefold ministry is either not at work or it is not ordered in its own function or in the eyes and understanding of the people. So he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints until we reach the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And you say, well, if, if the fivefold ministry is sent to take us beyond unity of the Spirit and get us to the unity of the faith, what is the order of the fivefold ministry? That's a big topic. I want to touch on it soon. But look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 12. He gives even an order for the fivefold ministry. First apostles, second prophets, third workers of miracles. There is a linear order of this. Now, if that is not ordered properly, or if people do not understand it and it's ordered properly, can we achieve the full measure of the stature of Christ and this unity of the faith that would represent the consummation of all things, the climax of the ages? We can't, because that is the solution. Those gifts, those five primary gifts along with all the other gifts, that is the solution that takes us out of the wobbling to and fro, out of the wavering between two opinions, 
and into that place where we know God's will and we do it. That we should no longer be children tossed here and carried about. <sighs> so when you see that, when you see an unstable Christian, you're seeing someone who does not have the five-fold ministry at work in their life. This is not real for them. They may be acceding to some version of Christ's authority in Christ's ministry, but they don't have that full equipping power that was intended by God when He gave those five primary gifts to the church. Because the reason He gave it was to stabilize a church that would otherwise fragment through individualism and fragmentation. So I remember being with Brother Dan and some other brothers uh, two years ago or so in another country. And I remember God visiting a large congregation of pious people, of humble people, sweet people. I remember God visiting these people with power, love, promise, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And a remnant came out of that large congregation. But the majority, let's say nine-tenths of that congregation, remained and rejected. They remained in their ossified disobedience and rejected the hope that God was handing them. And what's interesting is that they rejected the truth about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the truth about the body of Christ, the truth about baptism in Jesus' name and the oneness of God. They rejected these foundational truths in the name of unity. That was the rubric under which they perpetrated their rejection. Does that make sense to you? So it starts raising questions about what is unity? <laughs> How do we get it? They said, we can't take these steps. At first they said, we can't worship like that because that's not humble. And then we showed them in the Word of God how it says, to call on the name of the Lord, Litzok in Hebrew. And we showed him how it says in Philippians, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. And we challenged their view of humility and said, you can't call humility whatever you think is humble. You can only be humble by being obedient. And if the Word of God says that this is how you're supposed to worship, you don't really have an option. And if the Word of God says this is how you're supposed to be baptized, you don't have an option. But they rejected these truths that they originally started to accept. They rejected them in the name of unity, in the name of preserving unity. Because there was a contingent among them who were very carnally minded. And that contingent was disproportionately influential in the workings of everyday life, community, business, and so on and so forth. So they were dependent on this carnal contingent and the carnal contingent didn't like worship that really abased the flesh. The carnal contingent didn't like a move of the spirit that was out of the control of the carnal mind. And the leadership said, we can't alienate this stubborn contention, my words not theirs, we can't alienate this contingent because that's going to create disunity. We said, wait, wait a minute. We know God wants unity. But Jesus said, do not begin to think that I came to bring peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So we've got we've to think about these scriptures, these, this invitation to unity. We've got to think about it in light of Jesus' words. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So on and so forth. So we have to get a definition of unity that doesn't throw that out. Do you understand? Because ultimately, in their need to preserve sameness, they rejected the word and move of God in the name of God's unity. Is that compatible with Scripture? He does not say, be careful 
or endeavor to preserve unity. He says, be careful and endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit. True unity comes through anointing. It is the oil coming down from Aaron's head, covering the whole body. The unity of carnal minds has another word, and it shares nothing in common with the unity that releases power in the church. And what is that worldly word for unity? What is the, what is the counterpart in the world for unity? It's a word that begins with a C. Compromise. I remember the main elder of this congregation in Israel fixing me with a real challenge and saying, you know, and you should know, he says, and your dad would know and Brother Wheeler would know that any community like this requires compromise. And Brother Dan and I were thinking, you just really showed how little you know my dad or Brother Wheeler. <laughs> Do you see the difference in, the, in what they're calling unity and what Christ is calling unity? Compromise is the only way for peace to be achieved in a world of competing entities. Compromise is the highest achievement of the political sphere because they cannot have unity. Because unity does not come from man, but it comes from above. It is when God is over all, above all, and in you all. Do you understand? So right now, Donald Trump wants to pass a stimulus package, a bill for, through Congress, that would bring more money to help suffering businesses, businesses that suffer because of the way the governments have shut them down due to COVID. And his presidency, his, his election, may hinge on such a bill. It's very important to him. On the other side of the aisle, so on, on, the, on, on Trump's side of the aisle, he the Republicans control the presidency and the Senate. The Democrats control the House of Representatives. But the House of Representatives controls the money. So he cannot get this bill passed unless he comes to an agreement with a party that does not easily agree with him. Do you understand? Nancy Pelosi runs, she's the head of the Democrat Party right now in the House of Representatives. And Trump heads up the Republican Party in the Senate and the presidency. And so they talk, they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and they talk. And the whole world holds its breaths, its breath when these two talkers get in the same room. The stock market goes up. Boom, 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 boom. You can watch it climb when a guy from Trump's White House sits down with Nancy to see maybe they're going to help us. Maybe they're going to help us. Everybody crosses their fingers. And what is the hope? That Nancy's going to come out with a tear in her eye and say, America, I can't believe it. I was mistaken. But after talking to good old Mnuchin... <laughs> I realize they're right and I'm wrong. Do y'all forgive me for delaying the process? Is that what they're expecting Nancy to do? No. Nancy says, I want you to spend trillions of dollars, over $2 trillion, not only paying for COVID, but I want you to use the bill that you want to pay for COVID, I want you to use it to bail out and pay for all the states who have way overspent their budgets and spent themselves into bankruptcy. And Trump says, no, no, I'm not real keen on that. I don't want to bail out your failing Democrat states who are in the, uh, to the point of bankruptcy. I just want to get this COVID relief out. Do you understand? And Nancy says, you're going to have to do what I want or I'm not going to do what you want. Trump says, I'm not going to do it. And so they reach a stalemate. 
And that's the problem. They've got to compromise. The only way Trump gets what he wants is if he gives a little and gives a little of what he doesn't want to Nancy and vice versa. Do you understand? So that's compromise. Compromise is when you go ahead and accept a bitter pill and go against your better judgment and do something that in your heart you disagree with. Is that the unity that God wants for the church? When you give to God like Nancy gives to Trump, does God accept it? Paul says, where the heart is willing, the gift is acceptable. If you give grudgingly, God doesn't accept it at all. So compromise never achieves the power that is promised by the psalmist and the Lord for those who would come to complete unity. Compromise doesn't do it. You swallow the bitter pill and you say, this isn't right, I don't think this is fair, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. You're sabotaging yourself. You're never going to achieve that result that is promised for those who would come to unity. There are not two parties. There's only one party in the church. It is not a democracy. It is a sovereignty. And Jesus is king. Now the Lord is the spirit. If we don't hear his voice, then we're not going to be gathered into one fold. If we hear his voice and a dozen other voice, voices, then we're going to be paralyzed and caught, not sure which gate to walk through. It's only if we have come to a place of repentance where we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we know the sound of the shepherd's voice and we follow it with total devotion, only then can God lead people with different perspectives and different gifts and different viewpoints, different attitudes and different backgrounds, He can lead them all into the same place Amen. of complete unity. Thank you, you could trade out the word unity with the phrase mutual submission to God. I want to be completely unified with you. Let's trade it out. I want to be sure that we're both mutually submitted to God. I feel united with you. Let's trade it out. I feel that you're submitting to God just like I'm submitting. And I recognize God has apportioned the gifts in the body how He wanted them. Not how I wanted them. Not how politics wants them. But how He wanted them. Amen. And only in submitting to the voice of God through the gifts that He's given can He stabilize the sloshing and tossing and wavering and wobbling of immaturity and bring us to that unity, that stability that would release power. So if Nancy came out and said, I repent, I was wrong, that's as impossible in our expectations as the sun refusing to shine. Because human nature is that predictable. And until we stop looking at unity that way, we're going to keep chasing a phantom. Until we realize that unity is submission. Submission to the Holy Spirit. Not to traditions, not to protocols, not to ambitions, private or otherwise, not to opinions, but it is submission to God. We have no chance of achieving it. Until now the Lord is the Spirit for everybody in the room, or in the church, until that happens, we're not, unity is an elusive phantom. We're not going to be able to achieve it. Think about it on a personal level. I told you recently that for the first time in history, in American history, the main reason for divorce is not what it used to be. The main reason for divorce is something called incompatibility. And it is twice as likely to separate a marriage as the, two, the next two runner-ups. Incompatibility is why people divorce. Think about it, though. What is, that, what is the problem? What is the premise when you say that incompatibility is the reason for divorce? What is the hidden premise in that statement? 
that people cannot change. That, that people can come together and hold together outside of Christ. But the Bible says in Christ all things hold together and consist. But if you believe people can't change, then you have to compromise. And compromise is not unity. Compromise may work for two sides of a political system, but it doesn't work for a family, and it won't ultimately work for a church. Only unity will. So what do you want? You want unity or you want compromise? How are you going to get it? Total submission to God. Total submission to the Spirit. So if you, you know, when, when Brett Ship decided to do his little expose on us, he went online and put out word that he wanted to bring the charade of a wholesome community crashing down. He attracted all of our enemies, tell me your worst stories on this community, and he did it under a false name. And then he reached out and said, I want to do a fair and balanced story on you guys. You're like, a little too late. Uh, we already saw your Facebook page. We already saw how you've already chosen the narrative. And you're just wanting to fit the facts into the narrative you've already chosen. The media today is more distrusted than any major institution. Why do you think that is? Because they're masters at taking their pre-chosen, prejudiced narrative and just squeezing all the facts into the storyline they've already committed to. And yet that is exactly what human nature does. We have a narrative. We have a framework. We call it our perspective. And then we, we think that we're going to be converted by facts. But we just squeeze all the facts into the narrative we've already chosen for ourselves. We're not converted by facts. We're converted when the Holy Spirit stirs our hearts and we leave behind the small little boxes of our perspective and we say, God, I don't know tomorrow. I don't even know today. I can't even know my own heart, but I know and trust your voice. Where you lead, I will follow. Amen. Do you see what I'm saying? We can see that in the story of Jesus, you can see parallel narratives interpreting the same facts. You can see one set of people hearing him say, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back. And they think, oh, he's going to die, but rise from the dead on the third day. We, hear another, we see another set of people hearing the same facts and bringing charges that lead to his execution because they say he threatened to destroy our temple. And they don't even mention that he was going to build it back. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. The same facts, the same experiences fitting into one narrative versus another. So you can have, you can have somebody show up to a meeting and they've got a narrative that they have adopted. And that narrative is their perspective, their worldview the glasses through which they view the world. And they hear a testimony, and they hear a song, and they hear a word, and a teaching, and a scripture. And everything goes in to confirm the narrative that they have. If that narrative is that they shouldn't trust these people, it confirms that narrative. And if that narrative is that God is speaking to me, well, maybe that's what He's doing. But the narrative is bigger than the facts. The narrative comes first. The narrative is a trust. It's not a conclusion, it's a trust. Do you see that? It's a faith. And it comes from your heart, not your head. And if that narrative comes from God, if that narrative comes, narrative comes from His Spirit, His love, then to the pure all things are pure. But if that narrative comes from the rotten, cynical, fallen flesh, God can do everything around you, even the things you ask for, and it's like it never happens. So we see these phenomenal places in Scripture where people go to Jesus and say, show us a sign. 
and he makes the astounding statement, no sign will be given. And you say, Lord, how could you say no sign will be given? You've just healed a leper. You've just healed a blind man. You've just healed a paralytic. You've just raised the dead. You've just calmed the sea. You've just fed the 5,000. What are you saying? Why do you say it is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah? Every page of the Gospels is full of signs. What, are, what does he mean no sign will be given? Because in their narrative, they're not going to get what they're asking for. In their narrative, the incredible exploits of God's power are as if they never happened. And so we see John the Baptist being asked by the Pharisees, are you Elijah who was to come? And what does he say to them? No, I am not. And then we hear Jesus saying, if you are willing to believe it, he is John the Baptist who was to come. Indicating that a prerequisite of willingness and belief has to be in our hearts before the reality can become, can be realized for us. Your narrative is your faith. It's your worldview. And it's either the cynical, dim light of suspicion whereby you see through everything, or it is the illumination of hope and faith. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. In his light we see light. We get more and more revelation. And for that person, to him who has, more will be given. But to him who doesn't have, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. So if we're seeking unity, we have to look at our hearts first. We have to look at our worldview. And we have to ask God, am I framed by the Word of God? Is my, are my worlds framed by the Word of God? The writer of Hebrews tells us that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. What about my world? Is it framed by the Word of God? Or is it framed by my conclusions? Because I might just be the blind leading the blind. In a meeting message that my dad ministered back in the 90s, I believe it's called Moving Mountains, he talked about quantum physics and how the attitudes of a person's mind alters the world that they perceive. He referred to a study whereby scientists would analyze light to determine whether light was presenting in waves or particles. But they realized that as they would analyze it, the act of analyzing it would change the light from waves to particles, respectively. They thought they could just be an observer, just to see how the world was happening. But in looking, they changed what they were seeing. Quantum physics shows us that the thoughts that pass through your mind, the framework, the narrative, the expectations of your heart will alter and affect what you're going to receive or perceive in your life. This is not a religious study. This is physics. This is quantum physics. Jesus said it much more succinctly. As your faith be, so be it unto thee. As if his power was dependent on our faith. As if we had the power to make his potential energy, his potential promise, hostage to a dead and dying worldview that receives nothing from the Lord. A double-mindedness that can't make up its mind, that can't stop wavering between two opinions. That's a scary thought. And that's what I want to see change. I want to unshackle the potential 
that is waiting for us when we come into that complete submission and obedience to the mind of Christ. And the same God and the same Spirit speaks to the, all these different hearts and these different gifts, these different backgrounds and these different perspectives, but brings them to the consummation of all things, to the apex of the ages. I know I've shared it recently several times, but please hear me out again. When Jesus walks up to the man at the pool of Siloam, he tells him three things. Arise, take up your mat, and walk. Which of those three things was that man able to do? The framework of his experience, the worldview of his existence to that point, did not allow for any obedience to God. But he did not make the word of power hostage to his crippled limitations. Do you understand? He couldn't arise. He couldn't pick up his mat, and he couldn't walk. But he heard the voice of the shepherd. And God speaks things to us that don't just change a fact in the framework of a, of a failing narrative, but sometimes he speaks things to us that totally reframes our lives. And packaged with the word of command is the grace to obey it. Amen. Contained in the very words that seem impossible is a grace to do it. And if we say in our hearts, I don't believe this will work. As your faith be, so be it unto you. It will not work. If the man had said, Lord, I wish John or Peter would have told you, but I can't move. But, you know, I'll humor you. I'll show you it can't be done. Do you think he would have received the healing? Jesus tells us with other healings that he would not have because he said, as your faith be, so be it unto thee. If you can't change your reality, if you can't abandon the prison of your past limitations in opening your ears and responding from the heart, to a promise that is impossible. You're not a son of God. And for you, it is impossible. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because he calls those things that are not as if they were. He talks to a cripple as if he can actually arise, take up his mat, and start walking. And if the cripple can walk out of that prison of his narrative, then he can obey all three of those things and so much more. But if he stays in the prison of his narrative and merely tries to go through the motions of the particular instructions, he will prove God a liar every single time. God's word is not merely instructive. It is creative. His, instructives, his instructions are creative. They deposit. They empower. They carry with them the grace and the energy to obey them. And if we receive it in, then suddenly we can do what was impossible just seconds before we heard this word. There is the pathway to unity. To hear the word of God and obey it. And the Bible gives us recourse to know whether something is of God. Test the spirits to see if they're of God. The Bible tells us that the apostles' hearts burned within them when God was speaking to them. Did not our hearts burn within us? John tells us our spirits bear witness. His Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. The Bible tells us that when truth is spoken, our hearts are pierced and they were cut to the heart. Both when Peter delivered the sermon on the day of Pentecost and when Stephen delivered the rebuke Three chapters later, 
So we know some hallmarks of the shepherd's voice. Piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Discerning of thoughts and intents of the hearts. We know when God is pricking us. Amen? We know if our hearts burn, if our hearts feel pricked. Amen? There are hallmarks to the shepherd. But in a general sense, we just recognize the sound of the Lord. Not the man he's using, but the bigger word that is coming through the inadequate vessel. And if we don't recognize that, and we don't respond to that, and that doesn't set us in motion. You know, that man at the pool, he was in motion before he twitched the first muscle. His mind and heart said, yup, I can do this. Was there a moment of wavering? I don't know. We see that with other healings there was. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. In this instance, the father is almost afraid of that little voice in the background. But he's not so surrendered to it. He's not such a slave of it that he doesn't first own the little bit that he does have. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Always start with what you do have. Always put forth what you do feel. God, I feel your spirit. Would you show me the rest of this? Lord, I don't understand this, but I feel the Holy Spirit. Would you open my eyes? Give me wisdom to comprehend what I'm missing here. Now, that will lead the church to unity. If everybody has that attitude, we will be brought together. But if we don't, we're hopeless. You know, I shared a few months ago, maybe a year ago, I don't know. I shared about how on the day of Pentecost, there's two portraits of unity that are super powerful to me. If I look at Peter, I see a loner. I see an impetuous, perhaps hot-tempered guy who really kind of distinguishes himself from the rest. And that almost becomes a narrative in his struggle. Jesus speaks and says, who do men say that I am? And who answers? Peter. Mmm, he likes that. Jesus speaks, next paragraph, and says, the Son of Man will be crucified. And who speaks? Peter. The rest he probably holds in contempt because they go along with it. But he's not the rest. He's Peter. So he says, he takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Doesn't go so well. Amen? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Jesus speaks and says, you're all going to betray me. But Peter distinguishes himself again. He's not the rest. He says, though all betray you, I will not. Jesus gets out a towel and a bowl and washes the rest's feet. And Peter says, not mine. I'm not the rest. I'm Peter. <laughs> I don't do these kind of things. <laughs> do you see the distinction? John and Peter rush to the tomb. P John outruns him but stands there looking in. Peter brushes right past him and goes in. He's not the rest. He's Peter. Do you follow? They're in the boat fishing. Jesus comes to the shore. Peter, John says it is the Lord. Peter dives into the lake. He leaves them with that big catch of fish because he's not the rest. He's Peter. And yet, on the day of Pentecost, it says that when the crowd began to mock, Peter, who now has the Holy Spirit, Peter, whose Lord is the Spirit, it says he took his stand with the rest and said, men and brethren, there's no individualism here. There's unity. Do you see it? It's as if they're on a balustrade looking out from an upper room over a crowd that had gathered 
so great was the noise coming out of the open windows. And some are jeering, pointing up at them. And 11 of the 12 are standing out there, not knowing what to say. And Peter must have been in the back. But the old self-serving individualism died when the Lord became the Spirit. And he pushed through and took his stand with the 11. The, this, we're one here. It's not me the exception. It's us, the children of God, the servants of the Lord, men and brethren. These men are not drunk. And now he doesn't defend himself. He doesn't even refer to himself. He says, these men, referring to his brothers, are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Even Peter, who thought himself so different from the rest. Do you get it? That's unity. And when we come into that place of submission, God will reframe our world. Not just the content of the facts in our worldview, but He'll reframe our worldview. And we'll take our stand with the rest. <laughs> Not by ourselves. He took his stand by himself every other time. But that changed when the Lord was the Spirit. Hallelujah. Who wants unity? If God's calling us to unity, He's calling us to quiet and disobey every voice except the voice of the Spirit. He's calling us out of our individual exceptionalism and He's calling us to one team, not a team of compromise but of conversion. There aren't Democrats and there aren't Republicans. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all who is over all and in you all. And when he, when his voice is Lord, when his word is our light, unity is inevitable. God, what would I do, Lord, to come out of the shell of my worldview and come into that, that faith, that power? So what is the antidote for instability in the church that you should no longer be children. What, what solves that? What fixes that? The fivefold ministry. We have to ask, do we discern it? Is it real? According to the scripture. And what is the, what is the counterpart in the world to the unity of Aaron? of the compromise. Compromise is when I do a little of what I don't want and you do a little of what you don't want. But we serve the better good. It has nothing in common with unity. Unity is surrender. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God of all who is over all and in you all. In politics, they come out and say, we've reached a compromise. I hate him, but I'm going to give him a little of what he wants. And I hate her, but I'm going to give her a little of what she wants. Unity is where we come out and say, God, forgive me. We quiet down and glorify God. Amen. Isn't that what happened when, when Peter, he went and baptized Cornelius, but he wasn't satisfied being by himself in this victory? Eleven of the twelve thought he'd done something wrong. And he went and submitted himself to their concerns and their questions. Because he knew if it was God, they would take their stand with him just like he had taken his stand with them. Amen? And when the Holy Spirit spoke through them, did they say, Oh, Peter is as persuasive as he used to be? Is that what they said? Yes, well, that was clever, Peter. You ought to be a lawyer. You know how to be really fast on your feet. Is that what they said? No, it says they quieted down and glorified God Amen. and said, God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Amen. That's unity. 
And it was unity when Peter got a little ahead of himself and started getting caught up in a dynamic of the flesh. Little sectarianism, little hypocrisy, right? And even some other brothers were going along with it. And Paul steps up and says, this isn't right. And he rebukes Peter in front of the whole Galatian church. Well, Peter wasn't invested in himself. The Peter dynasty would have died right then and there. But he had taken his stand with the rest. And that didn't die. Just showed that he was human and that God was merciful. And he's writing about our dear brother Paul in letters to come. Amen. And Paul didn't say, aha, I've been waiting for a chance to put this chief apostle in his place. I got him. Let's tear down the church, folks. Amen. Amen. Paul submitted himself to Peter and, and James, Cephas and James, to ask whether he had run in vain, whether his gospel and teaching was consistent with theirs. Because it's not about individualism. It's not about this party or that party. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all who is over all and in you all. And if he speaks, there's the unity. Amen. Take this offering, even the smallest thing. All I say and do as my praise to you. Sanctify my life, a living sacrifice, so the world may see your presence shine. 